Have you ever noticed in our culture how popular love is? Very popular. You remember the old Beatles song, All We Need Is Love? All We Need Is Love, a great anthem, not only of that day, but really of even the culture that we live in now. I mean, love is everywhere. It's popular. It gets a lot of press. You think about most of the the movies that we see are about love. Most of the songs that we listen to, they're about love. Most of our celebrities that we love to follow, well, they're all talking about love, about things that they love and people that they love. In fact, we, we love to watch love. I just think about shows that are popping up all over the place, like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and all the spinoffs, which none of you would ever watch, I realize that, but some people do, believe it or not. But we love to watch people fall in love or fall out of love. And we are in a culture obsessed and saturated with love. But here's the irony about the love of our culture. As much as we love love, we are so incapable of loving actual people. You ever notice this? I mean, how we can love people in general... Love a people that we don't know, love a people that are out there, but whenever it comes to actually loving real, living people in my life, we're lousy at it. Our culture is lousy at it. And one of the problems there is that our problem is that we don't understand what love really is. I mean, the definition of love to our culture is it's something that I feel, it's primarily a feeling, it's something that I feel because of what you give to me. That's what it means to be in love, right? But the biblical picture of love is just the opposite. It's something that I choose to give to you, not because of what I receive, but because I've chosen to do it. It's a giving yourself away to another. So the biblical picture of love could not be more different from that of the culture that we see everywhere around us. I like to start off my premarital counseling. I do a lot of premarital counseling near the marriage mill on the hill here. So my first session, and some of them are out here and they remember our times together, I start off the whole thing with this one question. Do you love this person you're about to marry? And then I let them answer and then I move to the other one and I let them answer the question. Do you love this person? And the reaction is always, oh, yeah, I really do. You know, just you can just see the the oozing out of affection and desire and joy. Say, all right, great, great. I have to calm them down at that point. I say, okay, here's the second follow-up question. How do you know? You love them. How do you know you love them? And that's a little bit harder of a question. And I actually, it doesn't work as well with so many covenant students because they're theologically astute and everything, and they start trying to figure out the riddle, and it messes the whole exercise up. So I'm like, no, 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 just answer it. Don't worry about it. You're supposed to miss this. But here are the typical answers. Well, I've never, I've never felt the way I feel, with, the way that I feel with this person. I've never met anyone like them. I've never met anyone so beautiful with such character. I've, I've never met anyone that so made me want to follow Christ as much as this person. They make me a better man or a better woman. I hear all of those answers, and those are great answers. But I always follow up with this question. 
Okay, that's great. So what happens whenever they no longer make you feel that way? What happens when no longer do they fill you with affection, but they fill you with bitterness and resentment? What happens then? What happens that the person that was so beautiful all of a sudden is not so beautiful to you anymore? Because it's, it's a reality. It's an inevitable, right? What happens whenever this person that makes you want to run after Jesus so hard? Whatever, what happens whenever the presence of this ma- person makes you want to run after them and Jesus all at once? What happens then? So what I'm trying to get across to them is that the kind of love that will hold uh, a marriage, a covenant together, is not the affectionate, I'm delighted in what you give me kind of love. But it's rather a choice to offer something to the other person in spite of who they are. See, Jesus is, he's asking that kind of question of us in this passage. He's saying, well, if you love people who love you, well, what's so special about that? I mean, everyone loves people who love them, who give things to them, who delight them, who prop them up. Well, that's perfectly natural. That's everywhere. Evil people do that. You thought about that? Terrorists love people who love them. The mafia loves people who love them. All of us love people who love us. It's perfectly natural. If we're honest, so much of our love is characterized by that. But what we see in our passage is Jesus, He reorients love for us. He says, here's how you measure love. Not loving people that add something to you, but loving your enemies. It's radical. And here's how you do it. You've got to come to grips with the fact that you were God's enemy and He has loved you in Christ. That's what we'll see in our passage. So let's jump in. We're finishing up Matthew 5 here. And so as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been portraying this picture of what human life is to look like. It's a way of saying, this is what we were intended to be, what we were created to be. This is what our relationships are to look like. This is what our lives are to look like. And he's painting this picture for us, and we have called this the resurrection life. Because in Christ, through union with Him, He's actually making us into this, believe it or not. Our destiny, one day, is to fully be like the picture that He portrays here. And one of the things specifically that He's doing is He's taking the law that by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had been lowered, and He's raising it up to its proper level. See, the Pharisees were always doing that kind of thing. They were always taking the law and kind of whittling it down in such a way that it could be kept. See, that was, that was their M.O. with God. Their approach to religion was all about, how can I reduce this to something that I can actually do? So that whenever I keep it, it will make me on the inside and all of those other people on the outside. It'll make me better than all of these people. And God will accept me because of all that I've done here. And therefore, I won't have to depend upon His mercy. That's really what was behind their whole system. It was actually a way to get God off of their back. It was a way to say, I'm right because of what I've done. I'm not dependent on your mercy, but you delight in me. It was a way of justifying themselves. 
And in doing so, they had lowered God's law because it was never intended to do that for us. So Jesus comes along, and in this section, He keeps doing this thing over and over and over. We've, we've seen it each week. He said, you have heard it said. He's quoting the teachers of the law and, how they, and the things that they had taught about the law. You have heard of it said that the law was down here. But I tell you, this is what the real standard is. This is what God really created you to be like. And he's doing that over and over and over throughout this section. Wow. I think. Um, So the section we come to in verse 38, he does that right off the bat. I've kind of put two sections together. In this section he says, you have heard it said, an eye and an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that actually is a verse in the Old Testament. But what they had done is taken it out of context. The verse was meant to teach in the setting of justice, in the setting of the law courts, that the punishment should fit the crime. In other words, if someone has has committed a crime, you should not go overboard too harshly in the punishment. That was the context of that law. But you see, what they had done is taken it out of context and used it as a license to retaliate. Someone wrongs you, eye and an eye, tooth for a tooth, you can get them back as long as you don't go worse than what they've done. That was their teaching on it. So it's all about how do you respond to injustice? How do you respond to insult? And so Jesus says, let me tell you, let me tell you what real righteousness looks like. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to them also. You see, if you think about the kind of situation he's talking about, if I were to strike you on the right cheek, and you assume most people are right-handed, it would not be an open-handed slap, but a back slap. It's an insult. It's not only an injury, but it's an insult. In like manner, in the next situation, someone wants to sue you and take your tunic. In other words, somebody is after you to get the very shirt off your back. Jesus says, well, give them your coat as well. Someone wants to force you to go one mile. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, in this context, Roman soldiers had the right to commandeer a non-Roman citizen. So they could come up to a Jew or a conquered people and say, hey, carry my luggage, carry my gear here. They were limited to one mile, but they could force these people to carry their stuff. If you know anything about the Jews, you know they hated the Romans, particularly these harsh soldiers. And so over and over and over, they had been forced to do this shameful thing. These were their enemies. You know what Jesus is saying here? He forces you to go one mile, go two. Strike you on the right cheek, offer the other to them also. What is he calling? What is he calling us to? To respond to injustice with love. To, in freedom, offer yourself above and beyond what they're trying to take. And in that way, you overturn injustice. You overturn it. There's a power to it. When the next section is very much related to this, as Jesus in verse 43 through 48 begins to take this whole section to its climax, to sum up the whole thing. And again, he begins with what the Pharisees had been teaching. He says, You have heard it said, 
Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's actually nowhere in the Bible. Love your enemy, uh, love, your, love your neighbor is. Leviticus 19. It was actually seen as a, a summation of all of the law. This is what it all was to mean, to love your neighbor. But of course you can imagine what the teachers of the law would do with that. So, who is my neighbor? It's an important question. Especially if I'm wanting to know exactly what I need to do to be right. Exactly what I need to do to avoid breaking a law. Because you remember, everything is based upon them being able to keep the law. So let's parse this out. Who exactly is my neighbor? Well, obviously it must mean my fellow Jew. It must mean the person that is just like me. Okay, well then that leaves enemies. Well, we, of course, ought to hate them. I mean, what could be more natural than to hate our enemies? And so they were actually teaching this. Love your neighbor, which means the person, essentially, that loves you, and hate your enemy. That's the standard. That's the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here's what I tell you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus turns it completely upside down and calls us to something so radical and shocking you can't even imagine. He says, here's what I'm calling you to do. Let me explain to you who your neighbor is. It's not the person who likes you. It's the person possibly that is nearest to you that drives you up the wall. Who is your enemy? That's who you're to love. The word that Jesus uses here for love is agape. You've probably heard of this word before. There was, uh, in the Greek language, there's a number of words that refer to love. There's a word for romantic love. There's a word for brotherly love. But this word agape was very different than those. Agape love is a kind of love that you would show to someone who doesn't deserve it. You would show agape love to someone from whom you would receive nothing in return. It's kind of a a self-giving kind of love, a kind of in spite of who they are kind of love. And that's why Jesus uses it here. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to love our enemies in such a way that we seek their goodwill. That we seek to do them good. The second part of that, he kind of gives you an example of what it looks like. Pray for those who persecute you. you imagine that? To the people who are your enemies who are persecuting you for who you are and what you believe, Jesus says, yeah, yeah. Those people, I want you to go before God and say, God, would you bless them? Would you show your kindness to them? Would you help them? Does that seem insane to you? The very next part of the verse, Jesus kind of gives us the why. Now, why would we do such a thing? Why would we love our enemies? Look at what Jesus says in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now that's a phrase that's used a lot of times. A son of God, the son of the Father. What is meant by that? Well, it certainly means that you're in His family, that you come from Him, that you belong to Him. But more specifically, He's referring to this sense in which sons look like their fathers. You know, we, we, we do this all the time in our culture. We have all these sayings whenever you see a child that looks just like his father. You know, we say things like, he's a spitting image. He's a spitting image of his daddy. You know, 
the, he's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. All these little sayings to refer to. He looks, I know who he is. I know who he belongs to. He looks just like his daddy. Now, every time me and my family are out somewhere, this happens to me all the time with my middle son, Wynn. I call him my mini-me. He looks just like me. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this. But we'll be out in public somewhere, and somebody will come up and they'll be like, that is your son. He looks just like you. This happens to us all the time. That's what Jesus is getting at here. If you love your enemies, you know what just stands out right off the bat? You're a spitting image of your Father in heaven. Because you see, that's what He's like. You ever thought about that? Our God is a God who is characterized by this. He loves His enemies. It's remarkable. He goes on to kind of spell out exactly what that looks like. He says, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what He does. The earth is filled with people who are His enemy, who are in open rebellion against Him with pure indifference or outright hatred. You know what He does? He lavishes His blessings on them constantly. He shows His kindness to them. He keeps their heart pumping. He provides for their needs. He's patient and long-suffering for them. In fact, we learn He longs for them to turn to Him, to know His love, to open themselves and repent. He longs for it. Every single person, no matter how bad or how horrible they are, that's what He is like. So Jesus says, you want to be a son of the Father? You want to be a spitting image? Love your enemies. That's what He's like. So as we think about this concept of loving your enemies, it's important to feel the full weight of this. You know, this this reality of loving your enemies is what sets us apart from every other religion and every other philosophy in the world. Every other religion has got love as a centerpiece. You're, You're supposed to love. You'll hear that in every religion. Love. Love is... Love is all it takes. Love is the most important thing. All we need is love. You'll hear that in every religion. What sets us apart? We love our enemies. It's what makes us unique. And of course, the reality is you begin to get actually close to what this means in your life. It's not a reality that fills you with warmth. C.S. Lewis makes this point. He says, if you were to call someone to love other people, you would be met with affirmation. You're right. That's such a good thing. But he said the moment you call someone to love an enemy, a specific enemy, especially one who has recently done them wrong, you will be met with howls of anger. It is an odious concept. In general, it sounds great. But whenever you think about actual people, that's when it becomes a horrible prospect, a costly one. And that is what Jesus is calling us to. So as we started off, we were saying, it's very easy to be in love with the concept of love. I would even say it's easy to be, to be in love with the concept of loving your enemies, but to be deceived and not actually love any enemies. So I want to ask a question that helps us to kind of get a little specific in application. Who are your enemies? Think about them for a minute. Now, for some of us in here, 
two seconds, you knew who it was. In fact, they might have been on your mind all morning already. Doesn't take long to know exactly who your enemies are. But for others of us, we might just be feeling so benevolent and so kind this morning that we tend to think, you know what, I I actually don't think I have any enemies. You know, so maybe this message is for somebody sitting next to me, but I feel so kind and so inclined towards other people. So it's very easy for us to live in illusions, okay? So just let's just take a minute, use a little imagination and begin to think about it. Who angers you in your life? Who irritates you on a regular basis? <clears throat> who does you wrong? Who, do, who are you filled with bitterness towards? Who's the critic in your life? You know, oftentimes that's, that becomes an enemy quite quick, quickly. Is there someone in your life that, that seems to see your, your faults with scientific accuracy and has enough love in their heart to show it to you all the time? Who is the critic in your life? Often they very quickly become our critics. Who's your competitor? Normally for us, our competitors are people who are in our area of identity or our vocation. So, in other words, if you were a mom, it might be other moms. Other moms that might criticize the way that you do things. Other moms that seem to just do it all right and you can't. It might be another pastor, another church. Just get a little honest here for a minute. Who's your competitor? It might be another businessman, another teacher. It might be a coworker, where you always feel this, this competition and this elbowing and this striving to get ahead. Who's your enemy? For some of us, it might be our own family. It might be your own spouse. In fact, it often is. Now, let me ask you a second question. What is your normal response to your enemies? What, what is your normal attitude and response to them? Do you ever tend to go and, and just kind of share with other people how wrong they are and how wrong they've done you? You know, there's something about that. There's something about being able to tell other people about how someone has wronged you and how wrong they are that seems to just kind of lift the pressure and the pain, Right? called gossip. It's a way to stick it to the enemy. Or do you dream about their downfall? You know, just kind of daydream about it all coming, crashing down. Here's what Jesus is saying for those specific enemies. Here's what I'm calling you to. Love them. Pray for them. Let your attitude towards them be one of benevolence and giving. And how can I give myself to you? How can I show you kindness? How can I love you? Because so says Jesus, this is the kind of thing that will be salt and light in the world. It's the only thing that has the power to break through those things. Jesus is saying, this is the kind of life I'm calling you to. A love even of your enemies. Now one thing is we go through the Sermon on the Mount, And even as we see Jesus laying out right here His vision for us, for how we're to live, that is so very high, what He's calling us to, 
It's easy for us to kind of reduce it and think he's just suggesting this. But look, at the very last verse in verse 48, he kind of sums up. Here's the standard. If you're looking for a standard, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, what we're called to is nothing short of the very image of Christ. You want to compare yourself to something and say, how am I doing here? Compare yourself to Jesus. Am I like Him? And if we take His Word seriously, and if we take those questions kind of seriously, if you're reading it right, here's the kind of response you're going to have. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Because I am far from that. I mean far, just in one day. I just take one day and compare myself to Jesus, and what do I see? I need to change. That's what you got to see. If you see that, you're in a perfect spot. But you know what changes us? It does not change us just to believe that God is this loving. Just to believe that God is the kind of God that loves His enemies. That is a wonderful concept, but it won't change you. What changes you is seeing that love in the face of this fact. I am His enemy by nature. That's what changes you. As you begin to see, I am the enemy. I am the one who has leveled offense after offense at the living God. I am the one who is in open rebellion to Him. I am the one who daily prefers my will to His will. You've got to first see that. And in the face of that, see His tenacious, never-ending, never-dying kind of love for you in the person of His Son. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says, Even while we were enemies of God, He reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. Think about this reality. Jesus sees everything about you. All of your attitudes, all of your thoughts, all of the things that you do in secret, all of the things that you do to other people, He sees it all. Sometimes we think we're kind of like, my kids do this all the time. They're hiding from me and they got their head under the covers and their whole body is out from the covers and they think they're hid. We're kind of like that with God all the time. You know, as long as I don't acknowledge this to Him, well, He doesn't see it. But it's not true. He sees it all. He knows the Word before it's ever on your tongue. He knows you all the way to the core, and this is what He's done. He went all the way to a shameful cross for you. He endured all the hatred and the violence, all of the sense of being an enemy of the entire world, even an enemy of God. He endured that so that we, people like us, might be accepted as perfect sons. That's the reality. So often for me, maybe you're like me, I tend to get this in my head. And whenever I'm doing well, whenever I'm living in kind of a way where I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I can believe this. But it's only whenever I begin to struggle and I begin to sin and I begin to become aware of the realities of my heart that my confidence in this wanes and I begin to run. Does that happen to you? See, what you've got to do is in the very face of the depths of what's true about you, the darkness in your own heart, the reality of your nature as an enemy, 
You've got to see in the face of that the completeness of His work for you. That you are in union with Him and therefore the Father looks on you as a perfect Son. In spite of everything that you are presently doing. That is how strong and how tenacious His enemy love is for you. When you begin to receive that, particularly in the places where you are most ashamed, you will be changed. You will have the power to let go of what you're holding against others. It will humble your heart to a degree that you can begin to actually love your enemies. Most of you know I I really love missions, love to get to do mission things and learn about mission things. And one of my favorite missions stories is about this African tribal warrior named Joseph. Um, He was actually of the Maasai tribe, which is a tribe that some of our missionaries are working with. But he was walking down one day a hot, dry, African, dusty road. While he's walking down the road, someone comes up to Joseph and they shared the gospel with him. This man, Jesus Christ, has died to take your place and through faith in him, you can be reconciled to God forever. And for Joseph, it hit him right there in the moment, the full reality of it, a dramatic conversion. And he was so filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you know what his first inclination was? I got to go back to my village i got to share this news with him. It's amazing. And so he goes back to his village and he begins knocking on doors and sharing the gospel with them. Christ is Lord and he's died for you. But he was puzzled at the reaction. Not only was there indifference, not only was his words not received with great joy, it was met with violence. The men of the village grabbed him, held him down while the women of the village took strands of barbed wire and beat him till he was unconscious, near dead. They dragged him outside of the village and left him in the bush to die. day later, he wakes up and drags himself to a watering hole. After a few days of getting back on his feet, he puzzled over the reaction that he had gotten. Maybe I left something out. Maybe I missed some part of the message, because if they would have heard what I was telling them, they wouldn't have responded with violence. So he rehearses the message again, and he goes back. He comes back into the village and begins sharing the same thing. Christ has died for you. You can be reconciled to God. And again, the same reaction. He was seized and held down and beaten with strands of barbed wire. He was drugged outside the city, outside the village, and left for dead. Now, to survive the first beating was amazing. To survive the second was miraculous. He woke up after a number of days this time more determined than ever to go back into the village and to share the name of Christ. And this time, whenever he limped back into the village, he couldn't even get a word out. He was seized immediately by the people of the village and held down, and he was beaten. And what he noticed as he was just passing out of consciousness is the women who were beating him were beginning to weep. Some days later, he woke up in his own bed having been nursed back to life by the very people that were trying to kill him. They were now trying to save his life. You know what he was told, what he realized, what he learned? The whole village had come to Christ. It's a true story. There is something about the power of enemy love that will break through the hardest hearts of the human heart. 
There is something about the power of enemy love that can break the deepest darkness in this world. There is something about it. Only enemy love will display the truth of the gospel because that's the essence of our message is that our king was killed on a cross for his enemies and we're his enemies. That's the message of the cross. And so whenever we begin to love our enemies, yes, the enemies that are right there, right in our lives, the truth of the gospel becomes more real, not just to them, but to us as well. Jesus is calling us as a people to be a kind of community that loves our enemies and that responds to all of the hatred and the violence in this world with a kind of love that is utterly alien to anything else you see in this world. And as we become that kind of people, driven by the power of the gospel, that we as enemies have been reconciled, God's kingdom will come and His gospel will go forth with great power. Let's pray together.